So go ahead and stand with me if you would. A very familiar story. Look with me in the 25th verse of that chapter of Luke 10. And of course everyone here knows the story of the Good Samaritan. Of course topical thought tonight and want to use it uh, to accomplish a couple things in the ministry here. So in Luke chapter 10 verse 25 the Bible says, And behold a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said to him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. Now, of course, we know that's an impossible task. And no one can live up to the letter of the law. This man failed to see that reality. And so the story goes on. But he, this lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. We stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked up at him, and also passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, and, and this phrase is instructional, he had compassion on him. The other two men were religious, but they really didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And we know that because they didn't bear His likeness. Uh, they didn't follow in the steps. They weren't doing what the Lord would have done, what Jesus would have done. And, but this man, a Samaritan, a man ostracized, a man unloved and ill thought of by the Jewish community, stopped here to help someone not like him. And in doing so was more Christ-like more like the Heavenly Father than the religious men were. Verse 34, And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to, and gave them to the host, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. So now Jesus tells this story in response to the man's question, who is my neighbor? Now Jesus now asks his own question, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Obvious answer. And he said, he that showed mercy on him. I, I, I'm sure that was said with a little bit of reluctance. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Our Holy Father, we thank you for this night and the opportunity to look into your word. And Father, I pray that, Lord, you would speak to us through it tonight, a challenge this, this evening, Lord, to live on the other side and to go and do likewise. And I pray, Lord, you'd help us with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. The parable of the Good Samaritan is, uh, of course, a very beloved story. It's a frequently rehearsed and preached story. And it's one of those stories that has kind of transcended religious culture into pop culture. It, it's a story that really, if you were to say the, 
the thought, the Good Samaritan, lots of people who aren't even Christian would understand the basic premise and idea. Being a Good Samaritan culturally carries the idea of being a friend, of helping those that are in need, of lending a helping hand, and going out of our way to be a blessing to other people. In one of those rare instances, here's a Christian story that pop culture, for the most part, actually gets right, at least as part of it. They've gotten it right. Unlike so many other biblical texts that are distorted and twisted by the lost world, this one, for some reason, resonates. The secular lost world, for the most part, has an understanding of what God is commending in this text, and that is extending help to those in need, regardless of the difficulty or what might cause us to otherwise shrink back, is something that God wants people to do, to rise above their snobbery, their religiosity, um, their own agenda, and to literally be a help to someone else. Sadly, however, it is sometimes God's own people, as is the, you know, we might argue is the case here. This man's not saved, obviously, but he would identify as, as, as part of God's family. And sometimes it's God's own people who need reminding that we are supposed to act and show compassion like the Good Samaritan did. We often need reminding because of a deeper principle hidden in the context of our story. Now, let me just say, you know, we need to learn to inconvenience ourselves. We need to be the kind of people who on occasion are willing to disrupt our schedules and learn to sacrifice for other people. Getting involved in the nitty gritty of the needs of others is not something that professing Christians often do well. And that, I don't mean that to be an indictment or, you know, to lay guilt. I'm just saying it's often hard. You and I, you know, we come to church and that is to be commended. Um, we, you know, um, change our lives in, in, in some measure. And then, you know, then honestly, we just kind of go about our lives sometimes. We go to take our kids to school. We go to soccer practice. You know, we do the things that really the vast majority of the people in the world do. And sometimes there's really not an instance where we have gone to the other side of our schedule to do anything else for anyone and actually play the part of going and doing likewise. Uh, I think I, already, I know I mentioned this to you a few weeks ago. Um, I met with the director of the John 316 ministry here in Tulsa. I was really prompted to do that by some of the changes that I've seen here in East Tulsa. Um, as you drive to church, you see those changes. And the homeless population here has really exponentially uh, increased. And there's other needs here in Tulsa, this part of Tulsa as well. And my, my concern and heart is this, is that, you know, I, I don't want that to us to see that and just see that as a problem. You know, there's, there's a host of cultural, political issues that can make that a sensitivity. And I, I get that. And I understand some of those issues, I, I think. But neither do I want us to lose our humanity and or our Christianity in terms of like going to the side and being a help to people. And I'm not even recommending any particular help tonight, but I am saying this, that when we see the needs of humanity, we have to think, how can we be part of the solution and not just always identify as a problem? 
the story, I want you to actually take it out. If you have your bulletin tonight, I want you to take this bulletin out. I want you to look at it with me. And if you don't, it's probably be on your app, on your phone. It'll take me a moment to read it. That's why I want you to take it out so you can follow along with me. Because this would be a, an example of something that I would be talking about. It's, there's a thousand ways to do this. But this is one of the reasons that I want to get involved a little bit. And of course, we're supporting them on a monthly basis. We just, I ask you all to bring coats and some socks and things that they're going to distribute. But this is a story of the kind of help that I guess I would intend as far as living on the other side and being a help. Sarah knows how depressing and terrifying life can be on the streets, especially for a woman. It's really hard, she says. People don't give you any respect. They don't want to help you because they think you are a lower life form. Sarah knew she had to get, rid, get off the streets and began searching for housing. She also knew and needed support to make that happen. She found that support in the John 316 Missions Honor Road Program. The Honor Road Program is a homeless, at-risk women's, uh, women who are facing housing insecurities. With help from the missions case manager, Sarah was able to find a home in a safe neighborhood. Recently, Sarah completed year one of the Honor Road program, thanks to people like you. Now that you has to be someone, right? Okay. Sarah is in a new home filled with hope and a renewed zest for life and is still participating in the community she found at John 316 Mission. She says, I'm thankful for a home. I'm thankful for friends. I'm thankful for a family. I'm thankful to God, my Savior Jesus Christ, for walking with me every day, she says. A recent transplant from Kansas, Sarah was staying at another shelter until 2021 when she found a new place to call home. She worked hard applying for apartments and with the help of our case manager was able to find a place in safe neighborhoods with good access to public transportation and shopping. That very well could be one, like the community we have right here behind us who does subsidize housing and helps people like this. Even after she was housed, Sarah found a way to come to our Honor Road program every Tuesday and Thursday. Last summer, Sarah completed year one of the Honor Road program. Her supporters, teachers, accountability partners, peers, and church family came out to celebrate her achievement. In true Sarah spirit, she requested a Hawaiian luau theme. An Honor Road program volunteer, Sandy, another lady who worked closely with women in the program, says it best when she stated, Sarah has a way of brightening the day, whether it's breaking out in a song, drawing art artwork on the chalkboard, or just a good hug. Way to go, Sarah. We are proud of you. The Honor Road program is for students who are facing housing insecurities with a high level of commitment and accountability. The ladies are challenged with setting goals, reading and completing the assignments, uh, nurturing community, and meeting with coaches provided by John 316 Mission. The goal of the Honor Road is to provide increased case management and to ensure an individual is ready for and can sustain housing. Now, this is the kind of help that lasts. This is the kind of house that makes a long-term difference. Some of the subjects covered are discipleship, housekeeping, budgeting, self-care, building community, and recovery from addiction, and other destructive habits. You see, you and I have lots of opinions about what creates homelessness and or any other major thing. And there are issues there that we have to consider in balance with other biblical principles. If a man won't work, then they should eat. We're not about subsidized welfare and that kind of stuff. I, I understand all that. At the same time, if we're not careful, we're going to spend the bulk of our time trying to identify the problem rather than ever being a help. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying trying to identify a problem isn't a worthy goal or even a necessary endeavor, because it is. Because to help people who won't help themselves isn't really probably a help. At the same time, we have to be careful. It's just easy for us to pass by 
a thousand people laying in a ditch for some principle or some reason. And I just know this, the text gives us two religious leaders who did that. And neither one were commended at all. It's easy for us to hold right positions, but not posture ourselves for service. We refrain from things that are evil, and that is to be, again, commended, but avoid doing things that are honestly any good. And so the story of the Good Samaritan, told in the context, is a helpful, needy reminder what it really means to love God and to love others, which, by the way, are the two great commandments. If you take all the Word of God, and, you know, like in, in, in the alchemist distillation, the chemistry distillation, you take all those laws, there, there's two great pillars that come down that really all those law, laws are sprung from, and that is love God and love those made in His image. That's, that's the heart of all the laws of God. Our story is told in the setting of Jesus gaining a growing following. And the religious establishment being resentful of that growing following. They were jealous. They didn't want Jesus to usurp their place, their, their claim in the community. Jesus taught as no rabbi had ever taught before. And beyond his teaching, he did something else the religious leaders didn't do, love people. He ate with the publicans, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people of low and ill repute. And he did so not just to socialize with them, but to win them to himself, to show them a better way. The New Testament records a number of religious men coming to Jesus and confronting him. They, they, they very rarely did so um, with a good heart. There were a few, like Zacharias and others, who, who maybe did. Uh, but they were always trying to cause him to stumble in his words or find some fault in his character, to diminish him in the eyes of the people. And such is the case in our story tonight. A religious man, a lawyer, a religious scholar, who would have known the law very, very well, had it memorized way beyond probably anyone in this room has ever done. He came with Jesus with the obvious intent to find fault in his teaching, to find some loophole that he could, you know, um, pin on the Lord and make him look bad. And so to that end, he asked two questions, um, both of which, if would have been asked sincerely or honestly with good motive, may have been good questions, something that people should ask. The first question was this, what must a man do to inherit eternal life? Um, I'm not really sure what this man intended in that question. I don't think he was honestly asking how to be saved. Uh, but he's looking for something here, again, that might be able to be used to disparage the Lord. How's a man saved? Of all the questions in the world, I would say this is a really good question to ask. It's an important one to ask. Finding our way to God and right relationship him, with Him is the greatest thing we can ever do in our lives. How can we know God? And there's great merit in that question and that endeavor. But Jesus, perceiving the ill intent, refuses to answer that question directly. Uh, I think he knew that he would have directed immediately if he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So he leads him to a place where he might want to ask the same question again once he sees the flawed nature of trusting the law for salvation. And so the Lord asks a question of his own. Jesus says, well... Um, what does the law say on this subject? How is how, a man saved according to the law? What does a man have to do? And the man answers, Well, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. Okay. Loving God with all thy soul, all thy strength, and all thy mind. 
No one in this room can do that. That's beyond us. We love a great many things in this world besides the Lord. We, you know, we, it's like, you know, we can all say this, we love, but Lord help our lack of love. We believe to help our, you know, my, uh, my lack of belief. We, we, you know, we, we are human. It's not a possibility. And, and loving our neighbor, loving people the way we love ourselves, we can't even love our own spouse that way sometimes. You know, we, we might even show our own children loving them in that degree. Hedonism and self-love is what, you know, humanity does best. The man should have immediately said, wow, you know, just saying that out loud helps me to realize that's not possible. That's not possible. But that's not what he does. This man is quoting scripture, um, and he should have seen the impossibility of the ultimate high demand of this text. How can anyone love anything or anyone perfectly? But the prideful Jewish leader was blind, and he refused to acknowledge this. He was deluded, he was deceived, he was blind, and he thought salvation was the birthright of the Jews, which was the, the, the larger problem with these men. So circumnavigating the thought completely, he focused on a technicality. And so he asked the second question, well, who's my neighbor? Like, how can I love my neighbor myself when I don't even know who my neighbor is? Like, it's a, it's a lawyer question. You know, it's a way of getting out of it. Who is my neighbor? Again, hoping to pin Jesus down at some point of contention. Um, but, of course, you, you can't do that to the Lord. And Jesus, again, knowing the man's heart, refused to answer that question directly. But he answers it in a story. So he tells a story. And the Lord knows our propensity to listen to a story and then hopefully to find meaning from it. And he really reposits the question. And the question the man asks is, who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? Who am I obligated to love? Okay. And Jesus really asks this question, who are you willing to love? You know, to what, to what degree, to what length will you go to demonstrate and show your love? What Jesus says the story had to be shocking. Now, we read it. We think nothing about it. Yes, prejudice is part of our culture and all these things we can identify with. But in this day, it was really overt, like super overt. Um, the, the Jews considered the Samaritans dogs and slugs and slime and, you know, all the disparaging things we might say there. The, 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 you know, they thought they were on religious footing for doing this because the Samaritans were a mixed breed group of people, of Jews who interbred, you know, during the Assyrian captivity, and they weren't worthy to be loved. And somehow they had violated the covenant with God, which is, you know, ludicrous because the Jewish people had always violated the covenant of God, as we just learned in the Minor Prophets on Wednesday night. But anyway, not who am I supposed to love, but who are you willing to love? And the, the people who heard this had to be thinking, wow, this is not what we've ever been taught before. See, a man, a Jewish man, was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho on a dangerous and treacherous road. It was his misfortune to run into thieves who beat him with an inch of his life and left him for dead. Hope for help, though, came in two travelers. Uh, things seemed good, two religious men, but who both opted not to intervene. Now, we don't know, we don't know why they didn't, but we can guess. And it may have to do something with his ethnicity. But the Jews had a big deal about cleanliness, ceremonial cleanliness. And if I was to touch a bloody man, well, that could make me unclean. You know, it's kind of like the donkey falling in the ditch on a Sunday. 
you know, <laughs> I, can't help, I can't help people on Sunday, which really violates the whole intent of the Sabbath. But this is the same idea. I can't have a bloody man. I might get bloody. Then I'd be unclean. You know, they, they thought that was more important to God than, you know, saving a man's life. This is just how distorted they were in this time. And sometimes, you know, to a lesser degree, maybe you know, we could be. The two religious men opted not to help. And uh, they wouldn't, you know, take that risk of becoming ceremonially unclean or maybe because, you know, I, I don't know, whatever reason it was. They, they wouldn't help the man. So they chose their religious proclivities over true compassion. They opted for indifference, for fear, for selfishness, um, believing they were honoring God by not helping the man. I do know this, in the heart and mind of God, their actions were regarded as a failure to love because the story is told to tell us that that's the case. But hope comes again in the form of an unlikely hero. The part of the story uh, that is told now is shocking to its hearers again. A man offered aid and assistance despite his religious differences, despite bigotry, hatred, social marginalization, the importance of his own agenda, incurring costs, and risking his own life because the robbers very well could be there. And that was a strategy these times. They would hurt some man and hope somebody else would come and they'd rob him and this would just kind of keep going. And it, was, and it was just the way things worked. And people knew that, especially on this road. So this man literally was maybe risking his own life and helping this other. To help another man was, in this case, the echoing of the heart of God. So once this story and a shocking ending were told, Jesus now asked the lawyer another question. <laughs> Don't you hate it when you're in this position? Now, which of these three was neighbor? And this guy had to, he had to hate to answer this question. Like, he had to hate it. Which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor to him, you know, in this situation? And the man had to concede. And there is no other answer. Had to concede. He that showed mercy on him. And paraphrasing, Jesus says, you're right. So why don't you go and do that? Why don't you actually go do something productive with your life? Why don't you keep the law and then practice it too? You know, avoid evil and do somebody some good. Do all the things that are important to do um, religiously if you want to, but don't lose your heart of compassion. Go to church and help someone who's not here too. Minister in Awanas, the nursery, and all that, and there's a hurting word out there that could minimally use a track, an invitation to church, or a thousand other expressions of the love of Christ. That too is part of our quote-unquote religious duty. Go and do likewise. Now, if this lawyer had a half a brain, or any heart at all, he has to be thinking, I've not done that with my life. That's not part of my religion. So where does that leave me? And if I can't get to God by the law I've kept, is there another answer? And of course, that is grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether that man ever came to that reflection or not, I don't know. But there are some thoughts very quickly we need to consider for ourselves today. 
We too ought to show love, show mercy, kindness to those who are in the streets and around us who need it. Christian ethic demands of God's children that we view other human beings as worthy of our help. We need to use our resources to lift and aid other people. We need to be willing to sacrifice a you know, sonic shake, um, a cable bill, or whatever else occasionally, so someone else can simply have a meal, maybe the only one they've had. We need to view our personal time as disposable, not always our own personal priority. Our schedules are not the ultimate priority. Um, there are other things that merit interrupting the things that I have to do today. We need to run even the risk of incurring harm to be a help if it compassion demands it. All of those are considerations in going and doing likewise. Learning to live on the other side of fear and prejudice, indifference, selfishness, and even our own religious proclivities. You know, this is something we should say amen to readily. We probably, all of us, need to be challenged here and can do better in living in this way of going and doing likewise. And I, I just want us to consider that as a challenge tonight. Summarize and distill the principle like this. It is important and vital and even critical that we do not confuse religion and religious exercise as a substitute for genuinely loving people. I'm not being critical of anything that we do that has a religious connotation to it. Ritual is not all bad. Uh, conformity is not all bad. Standards aren't all bad. But they have to have a reason. And if, if those things don't have a heart in them, <clears throat> well, then I, I think it's probably would just be a straw man. Today, I believe millions and billions of people are trusting in religion to save them. And of course, we would know those religions. Catholics, Buddhists, Muslims, um, all kinds of people think religion saves, but it doesn't. A relationship with Jesus Christ is what saves. We understand that. And at some point, this lawyer should have seen this. And then more than that, found God's grace and then began to extend that same grace that he received to the lives of other people. Um, but I don't know that he ever did. I think this man maybe started as a good man, and then he started venerating the law, which is not wrong to do. Then he started wanting to avoid evil, which is a good thing. He wanted to do what was right in terms of the law. That's good. He wanted to abstain from purity. And then he got stuck. That's as far as he went. And then all those things are great. Now go and do likewise. You know, take the purity of your hands and whatever else. And go get them dirty, helping someone, being a blessing, being kind, mowing a yard, taking a meal, a thousand things. Like, you know, I don't know about all these people, but they're at least practicing um, some of Luke chapter 10. See, if we're not careful, religion is all about conformity. Looking a certain way, dressing a certain way, acting a certain way, doing certain things, and avoiding violations. But Christianity is not just about conformity. 
It's about freedom and liberty and responsibility and deference. It's about balance and honor. It's about transformation more than it is about confirmation. It's about developing a new heart, a new love, a new gratitude, a new appreciation, a new purpose in life. Religion is about rules. Do not do this. Don't touch. Don't taste. All these things. Christianity is about true faith. It's about love and justice, humility, walking with God in relationship with Him. Religion alone fosters fear and judgment. Real faith fosters love and grace. Religion is about ritual, observance, and meetings. Christianity is a demonstration of the authentic love of God. Religion is critical of all those different than us. Christianity, though, has compassion. It fosters understanding. It builds bridges and offers truth, help, and hope to other people. Religion sometimes can be about standards alone. The relationship is more than, higher than standards. It's about honor and doing things for that reason. Religion focuses on what can't be done. Truth, faith focuses on what should be done. So we need to understand that authentic, orthodox, conservative Christianity is also about love and grace, about helping people. Going to the other side of our agenda, our busyness, our sensitivities, our attitudes, and seeing the need that's all around us. Binding wounds, sacrificial serving, and acting in a compassionate way. I, I preach this message tonight, and you think, well, how in the world can that be about Christmas? I don't know, preachers can do great things with text. <laughs> it's a challenge. You think about the incarnation. What is that if that's not going to the other side? <laughs> Jesus is in heaven in this you know, super intimate, close companionship, you know, in the Trinity. And he comes here. You talk about going to the other side. That's really going to the other side. Why do you go to the other side? Now, I know we don't think about ourselves this way because we're in a ditch. That's right. And we're dead, we're dead and dying without him. So what he comes for us? To lift us up out of the ditch? To bind our wounds? Specifically, to forgive us of our sins? And by the way, he paid for all of it. Every bit of it. How about a Christmas challenge? You know, I'm really big on memories and the things we do here. Uh, I think those are straws in the broom that bind things together, you know. But what about a Christmas tradition that followed the actual example, the incarnation of coming to be a help? Like going through the Christmas season and as a family maybe identifying a need of someone in the church, outside the church, where you work, at school, somewhere, and actually doing something that helps, like really helps someone else. Showing a compassion. Helping someone in a difficulty. Don't overthink it. Just be willing to go to the other side. Um, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. In the New Testament, the word care is there a lot. Compassion, they have the same root. We often think about caring as, as, a, you know, as a, a sentiment. You know, I, I care deeply about that. Or kind of altruism, um, you know, or even an empathy, sympathy. 
But in the Greek, the word care and compassion carries the main idea of the same thing as a medicine, to cure. So my caring about you is supposed to actually do something for you. It's not just an empathy I have for you. I don't just care for you. My caring lifts you. It repositions you. It maybe alters your course. Uh, it, it takes care of a need. Maybe food for a day, a coat for the winter, like something real more than I wish you well when their bellies need to be filled. I think it's also in the Bible somewhere. Let's, let's think about that. I'm trying to think about that as the pastor of Eastland Baptist Church for us. I'm trying to think about that. We have to be relevant. And by relevant, I don't mean you know, what some people mean by that. You know, medicine is relevant to a sick man. That's the kind of relevance I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing things as a church that helps the community around us. And I, I want you to pray about that for you maybe during Christmas. A Christmas challenge. Be a help to someone. And I'm going to pray about it as well. Let me ask you to stand tonight if you would.